the other people you've had on are so inspiring. Oh yeah, maybe I can be badass like them, but you know, I also just like going my own pace. <laughs> hello, hello, welcome everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Hear Her Sports, the podcast about phenomenal female athletes. I'm Elizabeth Emery, your host and producer. Our guest today is a cyclist, so of course I'm super excited. But before I tell you about her, here's a big thank you to all the listeners who've said hello via email and social. I love hearing from all of you about women's sports, what you're up to, and what you think about the great athletes on the show. There's so much exciting stuff to talk about these days, so send an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com or message me at hearhersports on Instagram and Twitter. If you have suggestions for guests, I'll do my very best to get those women on the show. Well, now on to this week's episode, Tenzin Namdal, better known as Nam, is a first-generation Tibetan-American cyclotour, nature enthusiast, and budding travel writer. Nam is also a longtime environmental activist. It was actually thinking about climate change and fossil fuels that got her commuting everywhere by bike. And then one thing led to another. She now rides her bicycle full-time and advocates for gender and racial diversity within the outdoors industries. Nam is one of the co-founders of WTF Bike Explorers, a nationwide group that brings together women, transgender, femme, and non-binary cyclists for a three-day summit and organizes long-distance bikepacking tours throughout the country. I'm someone who often suffers going up climbs, so it was really great to hear Nam's perspective on riding up and up and up to 6,000 feet with a group. It was also really interesting to hear her thoughts on how the gender inequities in bike racing trickled down to other parts of the industry. She also just shares her plain joy of riding and hanging out with her like-minded cycling buddies. I'm really honored that we found a moment when Nam was in one place with some Wi-Fi and also to witness her life of adventure and travel as we set those things up. Well, with all that, we better get started. I'm here. And you sound really good. Good, good. Where are you? I am in Portland, Oregon. Excellent. The cycling haven. Yes, for sure. For former punks. How did you get from Headlands to Portland? Uh, we drove. Me and my partner live in a van currently, so we get to be very nomadic. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's one of my first questions, and this might be, seem like super basic, but what is your life like? <laughs> you know, like, um, <laughs> how do you live? Where you live? You know, like, what do you consider home? You know, how would you describe your lifestyle? Um, yeah, that's... That's like seven questions in one, Elizabeth. That was a lot. Of I know questions. it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so currently, I am living a very nomadic lifestyle because I live in a van, and we have a bunch of different bikes in the back, and we get to essentially bike pack in luxury <laughs> because we get to come home to the van with a bed with blankets, you know, instead of a sleeping bag, and having to find camp and all the stuff that we used to do full-time but don't have to anymore and when I say we it's just going to be my partner and I Ron um, so this last year we got the van just in November so we've been able to kind of re recreate the life that we had for the last two years um, and just adjust it so uh, we can have have more of a sustainable way of touring full-time, uh, bicycle touring full-time. Um, so before the van, we were pretty much living off of the bicycle 
Um, we would stay in Tucson, Arizona for the cold December to uh, February or March months, and then go to Connecticut, which is where I mostly grew up and where our parents live and give us access to their garage <laughs> and storage for all of our bikes and stuff. Um, all of that and, sounds very uh, civilized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like civilized with an asterisk. Right, exactly. <laughs> because we don't have a shower on the van or um, uh, we have a composting toilet and no plumbing. So it's, you know, civilized the asterisk. It's basically what you need and nothing you don't. Right. Maybe some things you don't need, but. Right. So with the van, are you driving, you know, you're deciding where you want to go and sleep that night and you drive there and then you do a bike ride from that spot and then come back there? Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's mostly been good weather hunting for us. And um, for the last few months since March, actually since late February, we have been going around the country um, or driving to different places to showcase a movie that we made called California Gold. Um, it's a 12-minute all analog filmed on Super 8 um, about touring with friends and capturing a, you know, a lifestyle of living off the bicycle that has elements of meditations on what it means to be outside in, a, in this hyper- uh, technologically advanced society, um, but still kind of longing for um, uh, I don't know, basic connection to nature and each other and to our bicycles and to our bodies. Um, so it's a really, I mean, I think it's a really beautiful film and it's gotten really good reactions from folks and gets people excited to get on a bike and get out there and enjoy their public lands and um, do a little bit of you know, exploring with your friends. What's better than that? What's better than that? And I think it's really <laughs> cool that you made the movie because um, so many outdoorsy movies are pretty white. So I think it's really exciting. Pretty white yeah. and pretty male. So I think it's really exciting that you made this movie. Yes, it is. Um, on that, there's there was eight people on the ride and more than half were people of color, which was intentional. Um, but also because these are just our friends and we wanted to take this trip with them. They're also very photogenic. So <laughs> it just made sense. And you're right to point that out that um, I just think I, as a person of color viewing things that I'm interested in, like the outdoors, cycling, um, sports in general, I just don't see images of myself reflected back. And so I've always thought that those spaces were not designed for me, which is not true at all, because those spaces are spaces that have been the most healing and the most liberatory, um, the most energizing and empowering spaces that I've experienced personally. And from having, you know, a lot of separation trauma and ancestral trauma, I know that people who have these um, challenges of trauma and not access to healthcare need the outdoors, need connections with their friends, and need to be seen in these spaces as people who belong in these spaces. So it was it was really important for us to create that um, 
um, that space that, that hopefully gets people to feel like, yeah, the outdoors is for you. There are people who look like you who don't have as many privileges who are still out there doing the things that you, your soul probably wants. <laughs> right. And you probably want. Yeah. You, you said that, you know, you had originally thought that the outdoors wasn't for you. Do you mind me asking, do you consciously remember that? Like thinking, oh, I would really like to get outside, but it's not a space for me. Absolutely. Um, I can't remember a specific moment right now, but if you look at, you know, magazine covers that are designated for the outdoors, I mean, just outdoor magazine, um, bicycling magazine, um, even Patagonia catalogs or REI catalogs, you know, you can see the models that they choose. I think it's starting to change now. I'm definitely seeing a lot more diversity um, within like advertisements. And so I think, I think that that is getting challenged and pushed. But when I was growing up, it, I didn't see that at, at all. Um, so it's, I think it's a two part thing for me and is one part is the lack of representation and the other part is being an immigrant and thinking as an immigrant in a industrialized nation that going to the outdoors and doing the things that my ancestors did was kind of going backwards and is not progressive. Um, and this is a message that I get from my family and um, quite often <laughs> they, they say like, you're going backwards. And I just, I, I disagree. I, <laughs> I respectfully disagree. Um, I'll listen and I'll take it in, but you know, so for me, I, I find it challenging to um, kind of walk on this tightrope of really wanting a presence uh, of people of color presence in the outdoors, but also being an immigrant um, and wanting to be seen as uh, traditionally successful in, uh, in a country that's built around, you know, opportunity and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, and I think a lot of people struggle with, with those kinds of ideas when they arrive to sports that brings you outdoors. Um, and I think those narratives, the stories that come out of, um, you know, the challenge, the push and pull, the intersections are the ones that I'm most drawn to. Um, probably because I'm a narcissist <laughs> and it reflects what <laughs> my experience is right back and I just love it. <laughs> are we all? <laughs> um, but I also think that it makes it it makes the industry a little more interesting, um, a little more layered, complex and more beautiful. You know, I think beauty is is a, is lacking a little bit. It's you start repeating the same old tired tropes, and I think people are kind of get disengaged and disenchanted with that. And you also have a history of starting sort of diverse spaces or creating diverse spaces because you created WTF Bike Explorers. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about that. I know that you have a summit coming up. Unfortunately, it's completely full up and yep. sold out in two hours. Uh, so yep. we can't instruct listeners to go and, and sign up. But uh, talk a little bit about that and how you got started. Yeah. Um, so WTF Bike Explorers is, uh, is kind of a passion project among me and uh, five other 
cyclists who are WTF identified. Um, and that kind of organically came out of um, separate conversations that the six of us had had on separate rides, but we were, we were kind of all traveling in, in some ways together, but not in the same places. Um, and having these repeated conversations, um, mostly what I just talked about, the lack of diversity, the lack of um, just women, images of women riding bicycles that wasn't sexualized or objectified. Um, just, you know, that's, that's very basic stuff. What I'm looking for is just um, like uh, rethinking of gender completely. Um, like I don't want gender to be a barrier for people riding bikes ever. And I, that's a big, big thought, but, um, WTF bike explorers was kind of the, the practice of that theory in action. And it started, we had our first summit and ride series last year and we're in our sophomore year right now. But, um, last year we, had uh, rides that were only open to WTFs exclusively. So WTF is women, trans, femme. And we also include, you know, non-binary, genderqueer, um, anyone who is not cis male, <laughs> essentially. Um, because we found that when we create spaces for ourselves, that we are able to learn more, connect more with each other, and um, just be a little bit more vulnerable because we don't have that um, that extra layer of uh, dealing with, you know, patriarchy. Right. <laughs> um, not that you know you take men away and all of a sudden there's no patriarchy, but um, it does kind of lift lift a little bit of the overt um, experiences or triggers that people might have. So um, when, do, when we came together for rides and when we came together for the summit, there was just so much joy and nudity <laughs> and um, just unabashed like celebrations of each other and knowing that we could support each other, not seeing each other as competition, but as comrades. And um, we just had to do it for another year. And it was obviously something that wasn't just felt by the six of us organizers, but it was felt by, by lots and lots of people. And I think that's why we sold out in two hours this year, because people last year, they learned that we existed. And this year, they really wanted to participate. So we're recreating the ride series and the summit again. Do you expect to continue for more years? I'm personally not sure. Um, this is a wonderful Thing to have started and initiated, but I'm ready to step back and let others lead. Um, it's I think a lot of work, I, I bet. <laughs> it's it's really rewarding work. <laughs> um, so I love I love I love the work. It introduces me to fantastic people that I never would have known about if it wasn't for this work I'm doing. Um, like the five people we just gave scholarships to are doing incredible work in their community um, and. Yeah, I would like I would like to kind of organize myself out of organizing <laughs> um, and headed headed in that direction. So uh, I'm really proud of what we've done. We've connected so many people to each other. We've connected so many resources that are 
just based on skill sets that WTFers have. So last year I stepped away from the summit thinking, gosh, if I ever have a bike issue, problem, question, I never have to turn to assist mail ever again because there is an abundance of resources and skills within this community who won't mansplain to me or, you know, be condescending in any way. Um, and who I just naturally, you know, feel comfortable around. You know, the bike industry has such a terrible reputation for being inequitable, you know, especially for females. And it's entirely deserved. I just recently read a report about how how bad it is and how much worse it is than other sporty spaces. I don't know. What did you learn in, in the summit and sort of connecting with non-cis males and sort of ideas maybe that you have for the bike industry? Mm-hmm. So I, uh, it's, it's difficult to think about bikes and not talk about racing, even though WTF Bike Explorers is not about racing at all. We care about going and adventuring out into the woods um, and kind of connecting with each other more so than competing with each other. Um, but a big issue that I see in cycling is the lack of pay for women athletes as opposed to men. I mean, even just in prize money, even just in um, broadcasting races or um, pay for for women athletes, that's that's pretty standard across the board. Um, and wait, what was the question? <laughs> Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking very specifically about, you know, you walk into a woman walks into a bike shop and just, you know, has a terrible experience. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I learned so much, uh, last year and a lot of them were through stories and anecdotes of, um, women mechanics who, you know, of a man walks into a bike shop and the manager lead mechanic <laughs> is a woman and uh, the man will refuse to take her authority or her expertise because he just thinks that she's not going to be able to fix his bike. And so he rides away on, <laughs> on a broken derailleur <laughs> and good riddance. But, <laughs> but, you know, I heard the story over and over and over again from female mechanics Um that they just get this attitude from people all the time, every day. And I've seen it happen too, to a, to a female mechanic. So there's those um, very large, like um, institutional powers that need to be challenged, but also um, a lot of interpersonal work needs to be done as well. So yeah, I think it's multi-pronged and we have to, as activists and as people who want to change this, um, kind of pick where where you're most effective. I, I mean, one thing that I, I like, at least we're talking about this, you know, you don't feel like you're the only one who ever experiences a bad bike shop. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think part of ways that patriarchy really can get us down um, is, or for people who don't benefit off patriarchy, get us down is this feeling of isolation, right. that you're the only person feeling this, this kind of like uh, self-gaslighting process that people go through because we have been told so many times that we're crazy, that there's something wrong with us, that our experiences are not legitimate, that we're being too sensitive, we're being too uh, hyperbolic, you know, all of these things. And when we 
connect with each other and are able to share our vulnerabilities and open up to each other, we learn that our experiences are actually very common and, um, and that we're not crazy and that we have each other's backs. So um, it's, it's been super rewarding to be able to have those experiences and share myself in whole truth and have others do the same thing um, is wonderful. Like a, a big thing that came out of the summit last year was, you know, we're, we're here talking about bikes, but we're not really talking about bikes. We're talking about our experiences and the things that shape us and the reasons why we go out adventuring, even though the world tells us that it's a dangerous place for WTFers to go out there alone. Right. Um, you know, the questions that you're asking both with the WTF bike explorers and the summit and all that, but also with the film, you know, about who is showing up and why they can't be heard and, you know, stuff like that, it often requires a total shift in perception. Well, you know, I have... Um... So I'm Tibetan and I was born in India and I moved to the States when I was 10. So from, from when I was a kid, I've been in activist scenes. Um, uh, as a Tibetan, you're pretty much born with like a bullhorn in your hand <laughs> to go to rallies and marches um, because it was just taught that the world is uh, not right there's immense suffering in the world and our job as tibetans and as tibetan buddhists is to change um to lessen the suffering as much as possible so i think although my political arc has not been smooth it's mostly been around that central idea is there's a lot of suffering in the world and our job on this planet is to make that a little less um and so from working from that, I would say that I didn't really have to go through large changes to, to grasp that bedrock knowledge, but I've weaved through, you know, environmentalism and fighting fossil fuels and um, radical cheerleading. And, you know, I've kind of, I've kind of gone in a lot of different directions with my activism and it's landed me here, but it, it all applies. We're all very similar there's injustice, patriarchy lives everywhere, um, and capitalism lives everywhere, and thusly, there's just su suffering all over the place. Um, so you can kind of pick. Um, I wouldn't have the analysis I have if I didn't read, you know, Chomsky or Marx or um, Bell Hooks or... Audrey Lord, you know, I wouldn't, I, I needed these mentors who wrote things down so lovingly during their lifetime to help us guide ourselves through this world that we're in today. Um, so those voices and um, hopeful visions of the future are, I, I turn to those all the time. Um, but in, in terms of like huge shifts in consciousness uh, that's, that's, that's a lot to ask for. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the questions I guess is, you know, people who are thinking about this stuff are thinking about this stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, how are you switching 
you know, other people's, I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, you even talk, just talk about patriarchy and capitalism and, you know, some of these sort of basic foundational structures Mm-hmm. And asking people to sort of shift their mind about what that actually is, you know, like from the very beginning, they're not having to shift, oh, maybe I should buy something, you know, less frequently, you know, you want something mm-hmm. sort of more structural than that. Mm-hmm. I would think that that would be a hard change to ask for people. Well, you know, I don't think that I could ever force somebody to think in the ways that I do. Um, luckily, I've met so many people who are on the same step as me, um, who understand systems of oppression really well and see it. And they, they had their own journey to get themselves there. And I've had mine. And, you know, last year, there was lots of people who came to the summit who were at different, um, different levels and engaging with uh, their activism and what, what systems of oppression looks like and feels like to themselves personally. And I, I would, I would never say to anyone that they have to now look at everything through this lens of (laughs) patriarchy and capitalism, because that is a big change. And that's, that's a lot of um, inward looking uh, that has to happen. And that's such a personal thing. I couldn't, I couldn't ask people or try to convince them. Um, I know that if they're there and if they're asking, then I will happily give resources. I will happily um, share space, you know, anything I can do to help in that process. But I would never want to, I wouldn't want to, con- I, my job is not to convince, you know, like the the proud boys <laughs> or the, <laughs> the Nazi sympathizers to come on my side. My job is to strengthen the people who are already with me and build deeper connections with the folks who are sharing in that vision with me and building a culture and community of like love and comradeship over, you know, trying to get people who are obviously not, it's going to be a struggle to get on my side Um, because there's so many of people like me. There are so many people who think, look at the world right now and say, this is not working out. Like, we've got to do better. We've got to do something different. And it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to feel hopeful when you're faced with the news every day. But I think about everything that the news might be delivering to you today. There has been an organized body of people fighting exactly that. Um, so that, that gives me hope and also is a way for people to kind of plug in and don't not get down that spiral of, of, um, of sadness (laughs) and instead turn that sadness into action and connect, connect with people. You know, it's really, it's, I think it's one of the biggest challenges for me personally too, is to have human contact and interactions it's so easy to feel like you're connected when you know we're talking on skype and we're messaging on instagram or sending each other videos through text like you think that you're having a real interaction but there's there's something to just showing up physically and um, being present with somebody Mm -hmm. do you have a guiding principle and I think this is a bigger question. I'm probably not going to phrase it that well, but I'm sort of curious, you know, like, 
Do you have a guiding principle that set you out and then you discovered cycling and the cycling merged with that? Or sort of where does the cycling fit in? I'm asking seven questions again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's great. And I, my responses are all over the place. It's, so it's going to be great. Um, I came into cycling because um, I was um, a student environmental activist in high school and college and throughout my 20s and just, you know, reading about climate change and um, listening to Al Gore when he first <laughs> told us the inconvenient truth, um, I think changed, changed my mind in a pretty big way. And I went from, you know, thinking that I was just going to be fighting for the freedom of my people, or the Free Tibet movement, to um, thinking about pivoting to climate change as the largest threat to uh, stuff. Well, it's the biggest cause of suffering to all sentient beings on this planet. Um, so I was like, well, you know, Tibet is very specific, but this affects all of us, including the plants and animals, critters, all of us. So it's something's got to be done. And the reason why global warming exists is because of this immense burning of fossil fuels. So it's a little problematic right now for me to say, I'm living in a van and driving all over the place burning fossil fuels when um, the original reason why I wanted to ride bikes was so I didn't have to drive a car. Um, and I was mostly commuting um, and never would have thought that the bicycle was used for anything other than transportation and getting, getting from point A to point B. Um, so that was, that was kind of how I got into to bicycling is already having this appreciation for uh, reverence actually for nature and um, needing nature for my mental health. And then having learned all the skills about bicycle touring in mostly on the back roads is um, it just kind of, kind of flowed nicely with each other. And so how, how do you feel about yourself now as a an advocate? I mean, what, what's, what would you say that your work is? Or do you have work? Or do you feel like that's important? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think you are catching me in transition. I've done, you know, I've done lots of different kinds of activism in different spheres. And right now I'm, I'm needing to look, look inward a lot more and um, understand impact as we head into 2020 election. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> want to know what's going on so I can, I can be more dangerous, <laughs> you know, um, um, to, to the forces that are, that are against kindness and compassion. Um, so I think this next leg after, um, after I'm comfortable with WTF Bike Explorers is of course keep doing that work. I think including uh, trans, femme, women, cyclists in just about everywhere bicycles are talked about is gonna be the lifelong work I am in this for the long haul. I'm committed to liberation for all of us, whatever that looks like. Um, but yeah, right now I'm feeling the need to uh, center myself and to get in better um, self-practice and self-discipline 
so I can be extra dangerous to the patriarchy. I'm going to push you on that. What does that mean? (laughs) Um, It means, you know, I've been wanting to reconnect with Buddhism. Um, I took a trip to India with my mom in February, and it was the first time I had been back to my birthplace since I moved to the state, so 23 years. Um, And I was lucky enough to get teachings from His Holiness for four days. And, you know, it was to a large audience. It wasn't me personally. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, just just the teachings alone helped me process through a lot of the um, the stuff that comes up when you're working with people, when you're trying to build movement, um, a lot of ego comes in the way. And um, it just, there was just so many uh, illuminations in dealing with people and yourself in the kindest, gentlest way. And with, with all that's against us, I think it's really important to embody um, embody the peace that I want for the world. Um, and I don't think I have that peace. I have a lot of anger. <laughs> I have a lot of um, ill will, obviously, because I'm like, I want to be dangerous to people. But uh, I want to be dangerous in a really effective way. Like, I want to get to the root cause of what what makes us attach ourselves so much to systems that kill. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's time for me to uh, really get into good discipline, self-discipline. Right. Do you have any thoughts of, of how you're going to be approaching the elections? Um, it's, I was just talking with my a friend last night over this very table that I'm sitting at right now about the elections. And currently I'm registered to vote in Connecticut, which is just going to be a blue state anyway. So I'm thinking of, (laughs) I'm thinking of doing work elsewhere. Um, Having worked for Obama campaign in, in Connecticut was, I mean, it was really valuable, but I just didn't feel like Connecticut is a state that is a strategic place to be um, if you want to do base building and movement organizing uh, electoral work. So I'm, I've, I've got some ideas, but you know I am really looking forward to who the Democratic nomination is going to be and then working my tail off to make sure that that person gets the seat, right, right. Um, gets the House, <laughs> the White House, because right. um, four more years of, of this four more years of this is just, I I can't, I think I just lost my words. I can't imagine. It's going to suck. It's going (laughs) to suck. I had a moment in the shower the other day thinking like, oh my God, it's only been two and a half years. You know, like there's so much left still. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's just, it's, it's just a never ending onslaught. Part of the reason why I feel like I need to journey inward to be really internally strong is to make sure that I have uh, good boundaries for what comes in and disrupts my day and disrupts my mood and my attitude, because that gets in the way of how I talk to people and how I approach myself and others in the in the very important healing work that needs to be done. 
And this presidency has taught us that, you know, there's never an end to the assaults that comes at us every day. So, you know, this is, this is the, this is the work that I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, I was interested in something that you said earlier about, about being an immigrant and, you know, you're going backwards, you know, do you, (laughs) uh, I've been reading a lot about scarcity mentality lately and, Mm -hmm. you know, fear Mm -hmm. of not having enough, basically, was it hard for you to sort of scale back and, you know, live in a van and, you know, that's an upgrade for you. It sounds like, you know, you have (laughs) been sleeping on the ground and not in sheets and beds, like you said, Mm -hmm. how have you avoided something that, you know, is, is just sort of part of normal everyday life? you know, like having a house, having stuff? Um, Yeah, I think I'm struggling with that. (laughs) Um, This last few months have been tough because, you know, I've been nonstop moving and I'm very much looking forward to the one month in Connecticut where I'll just be in Connecticut. Um, That's going to be really nice. But the scarcity mentality is super real and I see it in my mom a lot. You know, she's doesn't want to throw anything away, even if it's not working anymore. She just wants to stay save, save and um, to her own detriment. You know, I think the house is cluttered and she still doesn't want to throw things away. And I understand where that comes from. You know, having gone to India with her, she was kind of pointing out, look at how little we had. You know, this you came from you came from very, very humble beginnings. And we we are in a house that's heated with a soft place to sit and food to eat, which is not which was not available to her when she was my age and she had just worked so hard. So it does feel like I'm Um, there are days when I feel like I'm just not doing what I'm supposed to do as a good immigrant kid with so much available to me, you know, um, there, I, I have, I struggle with that, honestly. And I sometimes wonder if I'm doing the right thing, um, by leading this kind of life. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever find I don't know if I'll find peace with that anytime soon. I'm 33 and I, I'm not very, uh, I'm not very smart. (laughs) I I was when I was 17, I knew everything, but (laughs) now I don't know anything. (laughs) I wish I was 17 again. Um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely going to be something I will struggle with. Um, yeah, the pressures from, Family and my culture and society says one thing, but I find inspiration in young people, young Tibetans who send me messages on Instagram or otherwise um, and will tell me how liberating it is for them to see a Tibetan like them who's out there kind of forging her own path. Um, And that, that that gives me motivation to keep doing what I'm doing because this does feel right. I, I kind of, I don't know what I would do if I didn't <laughs> ride bikes outside with my friends and camp and make fires. I want to get back to cycling a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. What was your latest adventure? And maybe talk about that a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. So I just did an overnighter with um, a co-organizer of WTFs. Three of the co-organizers live in Portland, so it's pretty nice to to come here and connect with them. And Portland, uh, the areas around here are so beautiful. We just took a trip to um, Frog Lake and did some trails around that area and did an overnight for Memorial Day. It was really, really sweet trip. Um, And since we've been in the van, I haven't done these like long epic journeys. They've been mostly, you know, shorter rides or day rides. Um, but the last long trip that I did was through Big Sur with, you know, 13 other people. And it was so, so beautiful. California is so green right now. And when we were riding through, all the flowers were popping up. So it was just extra, (laughs) extra majestic and glorious. And then we would we went from the mountains, the Los Padres Mountains, down to the sea and saw whales and uh, sea lions and all these other little woodland creatures. And and what are the days like when you're doing those longer trips? Like how many miles are you riding, for example? Mm-hmm. It depends on the terrain. Sure. Some, there, there have been days where, you know, it's 6,000 feet of climbing and over, you know, 25 miles or something. So we just end up doing 25 miles that day. Right. Um, and how many I'm, hours is that? Maybe I should ask by hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll give you like a rundown of a typical day. Cool. Um, so I'll, we'll wake up at camp and um, have breakfast have a morning fire maybe if you're allowed to have fires and then we'll get rolling around nine if we're good and but more than likely it's like 10 (laughs) we get rolling (laughs) i like that style (laughs) yeah it's very very easy and then we just ride 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 until the sun goes down or close to the sun going down and when that happens we'll usually you know find a place to wild camp um we'll We'll stop around sunset, build a fire, um, cook dinner over the fire, smoke weed, <laughs> you know, talk to each other about stuff. And then the same thing happens the next day. Right. It's a very it's a very simple and beautiful way to live because you're tired at the end of the day. You are looking forward to what you're going to be making for dinner <laughs> all day, just thinking about it as you're climbing or descending or going through creeks and over bridges. Um, yeah. And how are you route finding? Um, I am lucky enough to have some really amazing route makers in my friend groups. Um, my partner, Ron, is really good at it. He's been touring for a, a long time. So he's kind of figured out maps and the different applications you can use to route find. Um, I have another really good friend, Sarah Swallow, who is an expert route maker and knows how to connect some of the best roads in just about any country or state. (laughs) There's also, you know, Ride With GPS has all of these routes that people have, and you can just search by um, location. Um, Strava also has those heat maps where you can look at where people have gone and kind of piece together routes that way. Um, I also use Gaia maps. But yeah, it's at this point, I know that I like 
when I like do a longer tour, I know I would like the least amount of paved roads because that means the least amount of car interactions, interactions with cars. And for me, that feels really safe and also really rewarding to be away from the paved big roads. So I kind of just look at where, where there's like fire roads or um, old logging trails or rail trails, anything you know, sometimes I end up on hiking trails and you have to hike your bike up, but, um, that's, that's rare. Right. But yeah, there's, there's so many, there's so many routes already designed, made out there with so much information, like on bikepacking.com, you can just find endless routes wherever all across the world. So there's just really great resources. If you are new to adventuring by bicycle and you want to um, everyone is, everyone I know is really nerdy about this stuff and can talk your ear off about gear and routes and tell you all these stories. <laughs> and, and when you're riding with a bunch of other people, are you guys all riding at the same time together in a tight group or do you all know where you're going and just sort of do your own thing? Yeah, we mostly do our, I mean, for me, I'm usually the slowest person in the group. <laughs> and so I usually have my own route. Uh, I have the route on my devices. We just kind of go at our own pace. And everybody's comfortable with that? I always have a hard time with that. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know with everybody, but um, it seems like we have, we have a general understanding that we're all going to ride how we ride to be most enjoyable to us. So we just do that. And yeah, depending on the group, we'll wait up for each other at turns or we won't, or we'll meet up at camp or we won't, you know, <laughs> um, but it kind of, it kind of works out, works out that way. I usually have a buddy who I travel with, um, you know, from traveling with a big group to just for just communication because you do become such good friends on tour. You really look out for each other. And I haven't, I haven't toured with anyone who didn't want to take care of one another. You know, like we kind of get into this pack mentality and it's really nice. So even when you see people that you've toured with, you know, in civilian life, um, I just get a little extra excited to see them. You cool, know? Nice. 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 Do you have a favorite adventure that you've done? Mm, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think I was part of the um, Baja Divide send-off. That was, that's definitely my favorite. I met so many incredible people there. Um, but it was, right, so the Baja Divide send-off was this uh, route that goes from essentially San Diego all the way down the Baja California Peninsula in Mexico. Um, and it's like 1500 miles of just the most beautiful stuff. And it's diverse and you go through so many different climates and ecosystems. And this send off two years ago was uh, had 100 people and, you know, 50% of them I would say more than 50% of them were not cis men and just 
so many opportunities for friendship and they definitely emerged and we had a really good time. Definitely felt like we were a wild pack of dogs just like running through Baja California. Um, that was really wonderful. And that's where I met um, or strengthened relationships with uh, two of the co-organizers for WTF Summit. And that's actually where we started talking about bike culture and what was missing and what we would have liked to see change. So I think that was that was my favorite because there was beginnings of so many things for me. You've hinted a lot during our conversation about what you like so much about these trips and adventuring in general. Can you be really specific about, you know, what has drawn you so much to doing these bike rides and because they're not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that part of where I am right now, this wanting to look into the, the, the journey inward comes from my experiences on bikes and being um, adventuring on bikes because you go through so many emotions, you know, um, I think that current traditional way of living in the United States, if you are, you know, college educated and able, you have to compartmentalize so many things like you're at a job and maybe things happen at your job that you can't really engage with fully because you still have to do your job. And then you come home and you can't engage too much or fully with your family because, you know, you still have to put food on the table. And there's so many aspects of modern life that are just stressors that you have to compartmentalize, shut down and pack away. And I think people do that constantly without knowing it. And when I've been on tour, I've had so much time to kind of detangle and um, explore what those compartmentalized pieces were. And a big thing that I compartmentalize is not showing so much emotion because emotion is for, especially for women is seen as weakness. And, you know, I was always taught that that wasn't a good thing, Um, but I've always been extremely emotive and sensitive. So bicycling has taught me that it's okay to have all these ranges of emotions, maybe even in just one hour, (laughs) you know, there's (laughs) elation at seeing a creature and then also extreme suffering because you've been climbing on 15% grade for the last hour, you know? Um, so it, it just lets you know that you have a, a huge range of emotions that they are perfectly fine to experience because no one is out there judging you, you know, it's just yourself and nature is extremely forgiving and kind. Um, even, even when it's very harsh, it's, it, it'll still take care of you if you know how to take care of yourself. Um, that sounds and, Buddhist. Yeah. I'm kind of a Buddhist. <laughs> kind cool. of. Uh, I'm reluctantly. I'm going back, but kind of reluctantly. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. How come? Well, you know, Buddhism is not different from any other organized religion. They, it's just, there's a lot of, stuff wrong with it and um, including sexual assaults by monks and high-ranking lamas you know there's a buddhist monk in myanmar who was calling for killing muslims and that happened you know there was a huge 
um, assault and killings of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar because of Buddhists. And I, you know, I, I had so many issues with it, but I think what's missing is right now on a larger scale is the, is an organized religious left because that has been a very powerful force in the past and that has been kind of dissipating, I think because religion has caused so much trauma for people. Um, but it, it doesn't have to. I think um, there are so many good ethics and suggestions to live by that we kind of need right now because the digital age makes us very scattered and um, spread a little too thin that we get confused about where or I get confused about where I should be focusing my energy um, and what I actually uh, need to be working on. So reluctantly going back. Right. Because I need it, but I'm mad at it too. <laughs> you can have both. We can all have yeah, both. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you're describing the bike ride and, you know, some of the times climbing for two hours or whatever can be really hard. And when you described it, it sounds like, oh, it's easy. I'm just going to sort of be okay with my pain and discomfort. Is that the reality of the situation? Like what's actually happening when you're suffering during these rides? Yeah, I'm suffering. I'm probably yelling every 15. I like it. <laughs> 10 minutes. Uh, screaming out loud, like, what the hell? What the heck? And then I have to calm myself down and look look at the route and say, okay, you know, you have to do this. It's, it sucks, but you have to do this. There's a mountain there and you've, you've got to get water. You've got to get food. You've got to find a place to sleep. You just have to do it. And that has been really good discipline and exercise for me um, as, you know, the baby of the family, essentially getting whatever I wanted as a child. And even now, it's like you have to, you have to finish this. You have to, you have to do something that is causing you pain because, number one, you did it yourself, and number two, you need to survive. So that's been that's been good. But yeah, definitely lots of curse words, and um, I try to distract myself sometimes if nothing works. You know, I'll look at flowers or try to identify a plant. Um, try to look for plants to eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that sort of, because yeah, it can be hard. I suffer on climbs a lot. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a suffer fest. Yeah. But you know, another thing is I take my time too. I'm not, because I don't have like the race mentality. I can, I can say I can w within a reasonable, <laughs> a reasonable amount of time. I'll say like, I don't have to get up there top speed. I get up there when I do as long as I get up there. And that that super helps. I'm impressed that you're comfortable, you know, not trying to keep up with other people. Oh, man, it's it's kind of been forced because there's no way I can keep up with some people. Uh, I often ride with people who've been riding for a really long time and are experts and pro former pro racers and there's just no way, you know, I, I used to feel really self-conscious about not being fast and um, feeling like my lack of skill was getting in the way of other people enjoying their ride or, you know, just having anxiety around, around my speed and 
although I still have it sometimes, I've really learned to manage that. And I've learned to do that by kind of prioritizing my own enjoyment on the bicycle rather than what, you know, trying to uh, project or control what others might be feeling on their bike. You know, it's just about, it's just about me. And I'll, I'll communicate that, you know, like I'll, I'll tell people I know who are much faster than me, like, please go at your pace. I'm going to go at mine. And um, I couldn't even try to keep up with you if I wanted, you know, uh, and that's been really good. So you carve out the experiences that, that I, that I need. And it, that in turn has been really empowering because it makes you think about what you want from this ride instead of, you know, going with the flow or trying to, trying to match a culture that no one communicated. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh-huh. I also don't like to hold people back, so it's good to be able to communicate in advance. I'm, I'm yeah. not very good at it, but I do get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we have been going way longer than I said, so I want to thank you a ton for, t- <laughs> for taking the time to be here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for being so flexible with my lifestyle. It's been <laughs> it's been really nice. Well, if you if you can't tell, I'm really intrigued by that, and it's very appealing, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks a ton. Really, it's been great. All right. Peace, Lizeth. Oh my gosh, that was so great talking about cycling. I love it. Thank you, Nam, for being on the podcast. I am organizing a screening of the movie California Gold. So if you are in the Cleveland area, stay in touch. Sign up for the newsletter to find out all the details about that. Nam is active on social media. You can follow her at goodoldnam, G-O-O-D-O-L-E-N-A-M. As always, there's lots of links in the show notes, including Nam's Instagram link. So head over to hearhersports.com to find out more about her and what she's up to. It's really super rewarding for me to talk to all these incredible women and be motivated every week But I want more people to know about them, to follow what they're doing, and of course, to keep pressure on the media to cover women's sports. Share the podcast with your buddies. You tell two friends, they'll tell two friends, and so on and so on. And keep listening. Say hello by email or social. Our theme music is by the band Goldmines. Our logo by Agnes Studio. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye-bye. I think people are getting tired of business as usual and they want to start their own business, you know, it's it's kind of exciting. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts.
With each season aligning with a pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!